Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Senolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Senolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code DAVE at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash DAVE. Use code DAVE. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health Dave for an exclusive 10% off. Today's cool fact of the day is that when wild chimpanzees share their food, they have high levels of oxytocin in their urine. Researchers compared those levels to when they simply ate together in a group but didn't share their food, as well as other things like grooming that stimulate oxytocin. When they ate their food together, the oxytocin level was elevated in both the giver of the food and the receiver. And this is why you should eat your high-fat, grass-fed meals together. Today's guest doesn't really require an introduction. It is the one and only Mark Sisson. Mark is the founder of Mark's Daily Apple, the most well-known paleo and primal website on the planet with huge, huge numbers of comments in the forum. I've learned a lot myself there. And he's the founder of Primal Nutrition, the author of The Primal Blueprint, and overall just an amazing guy, an amazing researcher, and he's got an amazing set of abs that he loves to show off all over the place on the web. Mark, it's an honor to have you on the show today. It's a pleasure being here, Dave. Thanks for having me. Now, can you talk about primal what is a primal lifestyle? How do you differentiate it from, you know, other other kind of similar things that are out there right now? Like, like give us the the Mark Sisson three two one for people who are listening but maybe don't know about it. Yeah, uh, the primal blueprint was my complete lifestyle uh, viewpoint that sort of started with an ancestral evolutionary based model and extrapolated it out into what amounts to all facets of life. So my intention is to educate people. Uh, in how the human body is uh, designed uh, through evolution, uh, what the expectations of our genes are, and uh, from there to be able to make intelligent decisions. It's quite, it's that simple. It's really, it's about, about choosing different ways of living one's life or different inputs throughout and doing so with, with a, a knowledge based in the evolutionary lens, if you will. And this, uh, just because I was looking for a cool, brand to uh to to encapsulate what i talk about the primal blueprint became that brand now i've been using primal for 
25 years. I My first company was called Primal Urge Press back in the mid-80s, and then I started Primal Nutrition in 1996, and I have Primal Fuel, and I just trademarked Primal Kitchen for a new food line that we're introducing. So, cool. yeah, so, uh, pr but Primal, uh, in, in some regards, sort of, um, it expands out from the basic paleo concept in that it does encompass uh, other lifestyle elements like sleep, sun exposure, play, how you use your brain, and all of those things that, that actually not only make us human, but uh, provide the kinds of input that allow for a uh, strong, lean, fit, happy, productive, healthy, loving human being. That is, uh, that is remarkable, and you just brought something to mind I've never thought of. Were you ever into like the primal scream therapy? No. That, okay. So, so <laughs> I just had to ask. No, but I mean, you know, every time I do a uh, an analysis of of a new term that used primal, of course, primal scream is one of the first things that comes up. And it's you know, it's an interesting, certainly an interesting concept, and I've looked into it, but uh, I was never, I never went down that path. Uh, I I tried it once. I was at some personal growth thing, and there was a, a, a dude there who was really into it, and he's like, "No, you have to scream." And I I really tried the primal scream thing, and I have to say, it totally. Uh, it has nothing to do with what you do, but I was wondering, like going back in time, um, you have you, you have almost twenty years more experience than I do uh, in life, and uh, you know I'm I'm forty two, you're sixty one or, or thereabouts. Sixty one in July, yeah. Okay, yeah. sixty one in July. So so you call it eighteen years. Uh, so I realized that you might have gone through back when when that was really big. So so you're not you're not a part of that, and it doesn't surprise me that you're not a part of that. You're you're totally separate. And I love the, the way you do that, by the way, just the way you talked about it being primal, because it is about what's going on inside the body and the way we evolved. And there's something else. Um, as a young guy, I think you had, was it arthritis in your late 20s, IBS, upper respiratory tract infections? Yeah, I mean, I, I really was the compendium of all of the afflictions that people yeah. list when they decide to uh, embark on a paleo experiment of one. <laughs> uh, and my own uh, situation was, very exemplary of the of the times. I was a runner and I was pretty good at it because uh, I wasn't good at anything else. Uh, and that's you know, it's funny because people say, "Oh, Mark, you know, you're 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 lean because you're a runner." And I go, "No, I'm a I'm a runner because I was lean." Uh, you know, it's sort of a self-selecting uh, kind of process there. But uh, in order to fuel the running habit that I had uh, created for myself and the endorphin Jones that I was creating on a daily basis. Uh, you know, took a lot of carbohydrates, and the, the the order of the day was not just complex carbohydrates, but lots of heart healthy whole grains <laughs> and beer. Beer was a was sort of the go to carbohydrate for runners in those days. Well, the the, the accumulation of the of that lifestyle of a thousand grams a day of uh, of inflammatory foods was osteoarthritis, and uh, the grains themselves had been probably the cause of my IBS since the age of 14. Yeah. So uh, that had been a longstanding issue that I thought was mostly a result of my being a, a type A kind of guy and carrying my stress in my gut, which is what some of the, the Louise Hay books would have would have yeah. told me. You know? are, are you a Louise Hay fan? You know, I'm a, here, I'm a fan of Louise Hay simply because she, like any of the trendsetters and any of the pioneers, she sort of looked at, at life from a different point of view. Yeah. And... With, with regard to, first of all, I'm a fan because I based my publishing company on her model. Oh, wow. Hay House has become a, a huge publishing yeah. company with a woman who started self-publishing her own books. So I'm, I'm very impressed with what she's done there. But also, uh, as we get to Paleo 3.0, we will start to see the the incredible amount of influence that our thoughts have on on how we... Uh, live our lives and how we recreate ourselves and how we generate hormones and how we manifest illnesses. And so with one of Louise Hay's uh, basic premises that a lot of your illnesses or, you, or what, what is ailing you, what she would call your issues, have to do with, with um, psychological factors much more than uh, physical manifestations of some disease, actual disease process that came from the outside. In fact, she would say they generate all from the inside. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. And that's, a, that's an area of expert exploration. One example, just not to ramble on too long, too, too, too much in these early uh, minutes here, but one example would be the number of people in the paleo world or the low carb world who have hit a plateau and still have yeah. 50 pounds to lose and can't do that. Yes. And I would go back and say, you know, okay, we now have to look at your, at your psyche and we have to look at the, at your, your, uh, the history of, of your imprint and inputs 
over a lifetime. And, you know, what are you doing to hold on to that weight that has nothing to do with the number of calories you're taking in? It is so amazing to hear that that you're into uh, Louise's work. It's something that we use during the 40 years of Zen, the neurofeedback kind of brain training stuff. And one of the reasons that heart rate variability is a part of what I do with clients, because you know you can do so much biologically, but your emotions and biology are pretty well interlinked at this point. Uh, I, I, that's impressive, Mark. I, I, I appreciate that about you. Thank you. Uh, all right. <laughs> wow, I totally did not know we were going to talk about the psychology of food, and I'm so glad we did. Let's see. Uh, it's like it's like being at a candy store, you know, when you're a kid and you actually eat candy, which I never did, and thinking like, which one do I want to ask next? Yeah. So it's kind of interesting that that you had these problems. I, I was 300 pounds, uh, 100 pounds overweight, similar set of problems, plus Lyme disease, toxic mold exposure, CFS, uh, ADD, all those things, and. Chris Kressler, similar thing. He got really, really sick in Central or South America. So it seems like a lot of the leaders in this new movement have all experienced really kind of crappy health. Like my arthritis when I was 14 was in my knees and, you know, it, it was grain based, obviously, and, you know, autoimmunity. Why do so many of the people who have become, you know, strong and focused on this and, and are willing to talk about it, why are we all the ones who just had to like deal with all this crap? Do you have any, what's the idea there? Well, I have a couple of thoughts on that. First of all, it's 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 kind of like that. I'm, I I ran because I was skinny. I wasn't skinny because I ran. I think a lot of us uh, were frustrated enough with the conventional wisdom, and you know, Chris has a has a science background. Rob Wolf has a science background. Mm -hmm. I have a science background. So so you know, I was, and I'm also a cynic. So yeah. let's let's put that on the table. So uh, you know, I I had spent thousands of dollars to through the traditional medical system. Uh, with yeah. zero really positive results. So I started to do my own research and that's what led me to where I am today. So, you know, people have said, well, Mark, you know, if you had it to do all over again, would you go back and be a marathon runner that, you know, ate a low carb or cyclic ketogenic diet? Would you train differently? You know, how would, how would things happen? And I, I go, well, you know, I'm not sure I would do anything differently because I'm so appreciative of how I got to where I am today. And I have so integrated this knowledge and I have so grokked it, and that's you know there's a there's a more than a couple of, uh, of of nuances there, but I've so gotten this intuitively that I know how to eat, I know how to work out, I know how much sun to get before I burn, and and then just enough to get vitamin C or vitamin D. I know how much sleep to get. So I I would say that most of us, the Chris Cressers, the Rob Wolfs, we we came to this out of frustration, and it's there's a there's a real value in that kind of information that comes from a person who was who, who did it themselves you know who went through that experiment of one and got those results now the second point I want to make is that I don't think we're that unique I think that most of America has some yeah. litany or list of issues that literally run their lives and whether it's you know an injury that keeps nagging or whether it's a little bit of mild arthritis or whether it's a little bit of irritable bowel syndrome or whether it's a stuffy nose all the time or whether it's a itchy skin on occasion if you were to ask every person in in this country you know are you in a are you 100% happy with your health i bet 90% of them would say no there's there's some things i want to address it's like that in in my background studying computer science and complex systems made me aware of some things uh, um, in what was happening in my body. And because I come from Silicon Valley, where like the culture's Silicon Valley-ish and you're very entrepreneurial, but very tech focused, when I was willing to sort of stand up and say, like, these are the things going on with me and my pants don't fit anymore, not because I put on weight, but because it fell off so rapidly, uh, that it, it, it became really clear that there's different I don't know, call them business cultures or just regional variations and how much people care about their health and how much they talk about it, how open they are to it. And I think I was in a place where, especially at the time, it was like, screw your health, like just burn yourself out, just do it. And I, I had done a lot of that. Do you find when you when you fly around and you do a lot of conferences, when you talk with people, are there areas where people are just more open to what you have to talk about versus people are like, what? Well, my body's fine. I only have 50 pounds of, of beer gut. Like what's what's the variation regionally? Well, I mean, I would say generally the variation is I live in Southern California where there is there's a lot more vanity that drives lifestyle. Yeah. And uh, as a result, you know, people spend a lot of time outside. They like to get tan. They like to be fit versus maybe other parts of the country where, uh, you know, the conditions are harsher. 
they're not surrounded by cameras or you know that that culture that would suggest that you you need to look great all the time. So I, I live in a sort of an artificial fishbowl of people who are probably more fit than the general population of the United States. But as I travel around the country and I do talk to people, you know, I, I do sense that that even you look at somebody who's even like ostensibly quite fit and quite healthy and you'll find out that there's something going on that there's some digestive issue or there's some breathing issue or there's some you know arthritis issue or you know whatever it's it's um you know that's the that's the nature of this society that we've created for ourselves is that we have these gene recipes that really do want us to be as lean and strong and happy and healthy as we possibly can be but we've bombarded ourselves with these inputs that switch on genes that cause us to store fat and become diabetic and and uh, decrease the bone density, for instance, and we uh, and we switch off the genes that, that we want that increase immunity that build that build uh, muscle and so on and so forth. So it's so funny because I've I've wondered, and you in particular, Dave, I've wondered why no one has taken on this mantle because I wanted to call myself Gene Hackman. <laughs> I'm sure Gene Hackman would have had something to say about that. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But it's it really is about discovering these hidden genetic switches yeah. that we all have uh, and tapping into that, you know, harnessing that that immense personal power that we have to recreate, regenerate, renew, rebuild ourselves on a daily basis. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to to come across my first book, uh, The Better Baby Book, Mark. It's it's in alignment. In fact, when I started the research for it, I, I truly had never heard of primal or paleo. Uh, I started in like the 2004 time timeline, looking at more Weston A. Price and a bunch of other things, but ended up being 1,300 references about epigenetics because yeah. I wanted to have two kids. I was, let's see, 300 pounds. Uh, I had ADD, formally diagnosed. I had all the symptoms of Asperger's when I was a young man, my, my whole family on my dad's side is like riddled with Asperger's and that sort of thing. And we're having our kids at age, you know, 39 or 42 for yeah. my wife and she was had PCOS. So I was like, Oh my God, I don't, I don't want this to happen as a, a loving father. Like what is everything I could possibly do? And epigenetics appeared to be the answer. Have you seen the better baby book by any chance? I, I didn't send you a copy ahead of time. I, I'm sorry. I have not seen it. Okay, um, no I, only, I have now 700 paleo books yeah. stacked in my I, back home that that I have to read. Someday. I'm not going to offer to send it to you unless you ask. I'm in the same yeah, boat. Yeah. I have, in fact, I've interviewed a few authors from your from your uh, print lately on the podcast, so I, I get it. But uh, um, the epigenetics thing, both as a way to control or hack your own biology, uh, as well as that of your kids and even your grandkids, it seems like it it should that discovery is one of the most important ones in the last I don't know 30, 40 years of health research, and I feel like. There's a lot of, well, we should wait and see, but like we're humans. Waiting and seeing means we'll be dead by the time we see. Yeah. So let's do what looks like it is best. What's your take yeah. on those very long study cycle things like that? How, how would you approach epigenetics? Uh, well, first of all, I, I would agree that epigenetics is the key uh, uh, discovery point in the last 20 years. This recognition that we're not at the mercy of the gene set that we were given yeah. We're not doomed to have heart attacks because our parents had heart attacks. We're not doomed to get breast cancer just because we have BRCA1 or BRCA2. This is, again, the immense personal power that we, uh, that we possess, knowing how certain genes are expressed based on inputs that we provide, choices, again, that we make. And, you know, your life is just about choices. In Silicon Valley, the choice is to order pizza out to have a, a, a you know a case of Coca-Cola to um, program until you fall asleep under the desk and wake up and program some more, uh, you know that's a choice. And yeah. and if the, if if that's if truly that's your choice and you're willing to accept all of the potential negative consequences, then who am I to argue with your choice? Yeah. But again, my job as I as I perceive it is to educate people to understand the ramifications of each of these choices and to say, okay, what are the what's the best greatest likelihood that you will become healthier and happier and leaner and fitter and stronger given certain inputs that I can provide. So I'm not suggesting that the Primal Blueprint is the only way. I'm just suggesting that it's a way that has looked at epigenetics and virtually every study now that, that you read always looks at the gene. What happens at the level of the gene? Whatever study they're looking at, they're looking at what genes were turned on or what genes were turned off. So that's literally epigenetics. I think what we're going to see, my prediction is in the next few years, we are going to see 
you know, the, the heritability of the epigenome as being a critical factor. And this, this concept that you can not only take the, the, um, the, the genetic recipe that you've been given, but that you can also take some of the on-off switches that you've already employed in your own life and transmit them into the future generation. It's a, it's a wickedly exciting area of science. I, I did everything in my power as a, as, as a father and as a scientist to do that with my kids and to write down a program for people uh, to be able to do it. The problem is there's a lot we don't know. But we do know what is the effect of stress on the epigenome, certainly unhealthy chronic stress. The effect of positive short-term high-intensity stress is pretty well established. Uh, so uh, sometimes it's let's make our best educated guess. And one argument there says, well, what if you do it wrong? I'm like, well, if you don't make your best educated guess, you also might do it wrong. So maybe you'll just do it less wrong and we'll move the whole species in the right direction. <laughs> I know. I mean, you know, I, Wayne Gretzky is famous for, for making this statement. You know, you miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take. <laughs> Amen. What a great you quote. <laughs> yeah. OK, so you're you're online with that thing. Now, this is a something that fortunately not a people, not a lot of people uh, ask about. But what about like this idea of eugenics, where you know, w w is it fair that some people might do this, other people might not? Do you have any thoughts on like the morality of of taking advantage of epigenetics or not taking advantage of it? Yeah, I do, and you know, I I really haven't. I have to be very careful how I position myself yeah. because my views are my views, and and uh, and yet because I'm. Uh, viewed as a, as a nice guy and a thought leader and so on, that I have to be very, you know, concise about my views. But in terms of, of uh, the overall concept, for instance, of genetic testing for, for fetal uh, testing, I'm, I'm all for that sort of uh, preventative measures, if you will. Uh, I think that there's, there's uh, a lot to be said for that. I think that, you know, we, not, not to go too far down this rabbit hole, but we have entered a period uh, starting about 50 years ago of de-evolution where, where uh, we keep people alive in any state or form because it's considered the right thing to do. And I mean, you know, this is not just, I'm just talking about the epigenome and the genome yeah. and encourage peeping people to procreate. Uh, so there is no selective pressure. And that's really what I'm saying. There's no more selective pressure. So everybody has the right to, to have babies and that's great. But at some point, if there's no selective pressure, then, then what happens is the genome gets weaker and weaker to withstand the rigors of whatever environment that we create for it. Uh, that's again where we're going to see a lot of this epigenome, this, this heritability of the epigenome, where the mistakes that you or your parents made will now transfer to your kids and, and it'll, it'll exacerbate itself over time. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, discussion. I don't want to, again, it's, it's yeah. a highly, volatile kind of discussion but the bottom line is it makes i want to take advantage of the science to make my life and the life of my children yeah. better and to the extent that i can do that and not play god i'm uh you know i'm i'm going to i'm going to do the best that i can it's kind of funny because you know your your quintessential caveman named grok uh in homage to robert heinlein i hope um, but uh grok back when they discovered fire you got to imagine grok is the guy who was like i think i'll use this fire to keep my kids warm during winter and the guy who didn't reproduce was the guy who said no no i, I won't use fire it's new science i can't do that so yeah this is a continuation of hundreds of thousands of years of of let's apply technology towards ourselves and and our offspring and it's it's interesting because I, I this is kind of a personal thing for me. I found out when I was about I think thirty two or something. I only have one kidney, and I have spina bifida, and I was evolved that way, or I'm evolved. I, I was born that way. Yeah. And why did that happen? Let's see. I have genes now. We know about these genes, and so likely um, my mother does about folic acid. And my mother was on a high sugar diet because well that's what you did back in the seventies. So. She likely had folic acid problems, and she was on a high-sugar diet, which depletes folic acid. What does that mean? It means my lower vertebra aren't as fused as they should be, and I likely have some congenital brainstem differences that I wouldn't have had. So one argument would be like, well, that's, you know, that's unfair. That sucks, Dave. Uh, the other argument is like, well, I don't want my kids to have that, so I'm going to use genetic testing. I'm going to use optimized diet. And I'm really fortunate that I live in the Western world and I can afford to do it. And it's not fair that my kids may have an advantage over someone whose mother ate lots of sugar and had folic acid problems. But sometimes it isn't fair. But I mean, how could you not do that for your kids? Like, I, I just don't understand. 
So that, that's why yeah, I asked I'm, about these. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's that simple. It really is about how can I create the best life for myself? Look, I'm, uh, the Primal Blueprint isn't about recreating ancient history and camping out in your backyard and hunting your neighbor's pets and, yeah. and living without uh, electricity. It's about, it's about understanding how we are wired and how, you know, what the factory default setting of our genes was at birth and then how we can best create the human being that we want to be harnessing whatever technology we can access. And if the, the interesting thing is that it's a little bit very low tech and a little bit very high tech. So the very low tech would be, you know, grass fed beef. Turns out that's one of the healthiest things you can eat. Yeah. That's a very low tech way of, of growing food. Um, it's even lower tech than farming, uh, you know, agriculture and wheat and soy and everything else. Um, my best example of low tech, which I just have to laugh at, has to do with, um, it's, it's a serious topic, but the number of people that I've met who have had Crohn's or who have had some serious ulcerative colitis and have, you know, they've, they've uh, gone to the doctor, the gastroenterologist who did the tests and said, okay, what we're going to do first is we're going to give you some antibiotics and then we're going to put you on some prednisone and that doesn't work. And then over time, we're going to take out part of your bowel and then that doesn't work. And ultimately, the number of people who have been cured completely with a fecal transplant, how low tech can you get than a shit milkshake? <laughs> Uh, you know, it's something that I've I've thought of of actually trying uh, flat out because it is so low tech, and my biggest concern there is knowing who the donor should be, and of course getting their consent for something like that. <laughs> right. Um, I, I would be willing to do something like that, although I would probably I, I don't know the worst way to take it. Hopefully in a capsule or something. But yeah, I'm sure you could find an enemy who would consent. To it. <laughs> Exactly. And it gives a, a whole new aspect to that certain type of eating grin that you might have. Yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah. I, I've been intrigued by that and ways to reduce my own uh, autoimmunity. And my inflammation levels are dramatically lower than they were as the lab tests all show. But they're still not as as good as I'd like. So I've tried pig whipworm eggs as an example of that. You can actually take these orally. Um, what's your thought on Hellman therapy you know, using higher level parasites? Have you even looked into it? I don't know. Um, only looked into it tangentially. Think it's okay. interesting research. Uh, have seen again. These are these are really low tech alternatives yeah. where the medical industry has taken us down a road where the, those same people I talked about who had who had undergone the conventional therapy are now three hundred thousand dollars into their into their journey. Yep. When in fact, again, a very low uh, low cost, low tech solution was was the best solution. So I think there's going to be a lot more of this uh, reversal within medicine. Well, first of all, let's just let's just tell it like it is. Most of medicine has to do with fixing issues that were caused by lifestyle choices in the first place. Yeah. So 80% of what people are dealing with, whether it's obesity, uh, diabetes, polycystic ovarian syndrome, or, uh, arthritis, uh, heart disease, these are these are clearly uh, they have a dietary and other lifestyle etiology at the root. So they'll either be completely cured by some lifestyle changes or significantly mitigated with some lifestyle changes. So, and those are all low tech solutions. You could, and I've said this many times, if, if people ate the way you and I suggest, if everybody in the country ate the way, within 18 months, you would have a trillion dollar less spent on yeah. medical intervention in this country. Uh, and, and, that's, and it's a low tech concept. Now at the other end of the spectrum, we still have amazing high tech stuff going on, I don't doubt that I will need artificial knees or artificial hips at some point in my life, particularly if I continue to play ultimate Frisbee at the pace that I do. <laughs> so, you know, there's some amazing things done at the high end of the of the high tech, but so much of, of what ails people today can be fixed with a very easy, simple, low tech, low cost solution. Do you use things like lasers and external oxygen and some of the other biohacking technologies? You know, I, I don't. I was in Las Vegas uh, last weekend for a couple of days for my daughter's uh, birthday and uh, it was something we, we, we brought some friends in and they wanted to go partying and man, can I tell you about some clubs in Las Vegas? But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they, and she called me one day and they were all at the oxygen bar because it had They'd stayed out till six the night before, the morning before, and then they, you know, hadn't gotten much sleep. So I thought well, that that's an interesting sort of NFL type recovery system. 
you know, every once in a while, I'll, I'll tap into some of these potential technologies, but the laser stuff, you know, not really. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm still kind of a Luddite with regard to some of this uh, hacking stuff. Well, I, I'm coming to L.A. a lot more often than I used to uh, because I, I have some of my, my team down there. And uh, if you're ever up for it, I'd be happy to bring a laser along. And, and the, the reason that I, I think lasers are kind of cool, one of them anyway, is that they catalyze the synthesis of ATP. So you get like a, a local ATP upgrade, sort of like you know pouring in uh, Octane Booster just for a little while on those cells, which lets them do a little bit more autophagy and just run more efficiently when they're in the healing process. Right. And it, it's kind of, it, you can feel it uh, working, which has is, is been phenomenal for me. And I, I stumbled across... Um, using lasers about a dozen or so years ago for whiplash because I, I'd had it twice. The first time it took me a year to recover. Mm. I was also eating gluten still, which is why the inflammation wouldn't subside. The second time, a friend um, brought a laser and I, literally after six minutes of lasering, I felt everything just like tingling and loosening up. And all of a sudden I said, I have my my movement of my head back. This This is impossible. It cannot be. And it kind of opened my eyes up to some of that other stuff. And I I hope that over time we see this fusion of, you know, grass-fed, which is a, so important for the environment, for our own selves, uh, and proper fueling, along with these other things that maybe didn't exist a hundred years ago. You could sit in the sun, but you don't get the same effects from that. Right. So I, I feel I feel like the future is pretty bright because there are all these things we can do now that we didn't have access to, and maybe some of those can stave off a knee surgery for ten years and things like that, and and. That could get you, you know, over the hump to a certain point. We're like, all right, now I'm ready for a new knee. And just a thought. No, I agree. I agree. Cool. Uh, let's see. I want to talk about toxins in food specifically. Lectins from legumes. I have found with the people that that I I work with, a, a lot of CEO types, and with people on the blogs, when people eliminate those they usually improve. A few people don't feel any difference when they eliminate them. So what's your take on, on lectins in food and how important they are? Well, um, it's interesting that over the past eight years, since I've really been writing about this and researching deeper and deeper into this, you know, the initial thought was lectins are horrible. They're, there's, there's nothing good about them at all. Uh, you should avoid uh, any form of lectins. But as uh, so often happens with uh, investigation into diet, you ultimately find out that everything is bad for you. Yep. Number one. Absolutely. So there's, you know what I mean? So it's like, okay, uh, I've just realized that there's no one food that's good for everybody. And there's, there's a, you know, it's basically, it's, it's a dose response kind of, uh, ultimately, uh, kind of issue. Um, with regard to lectins in general, some are worse than others. Right. And so, you know, I think all of these foods exist on a spectrum of worst, to less egregious or, or, or good on the spectrum of grains, I would not encourage anyone to eat, uh, you know, red dwarf wheat. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. you know, it's probably nothing, no redeeming value in it at all. Uh, so wheat, barley, rye on the one end of the spectrum and then on the other end, you know, white rice, probably harmless. A cheap yeah. source of calories converts to glucose pretty readily. Um, quinoa, people say, oh, can I have quinoa on the primal blueprint? You know, can have whatever you want. <laughs> uh, you just have to know the, the different nuances. So with regard to certain types of lectins that are found, for instance, in legumes. Um, depending on the nature of the bean and uh, other, uh, there are other issues besides lectins. I mean, they contain some pretty uh, powerful, uh, soluble fibers that uh, can have an effect on your gut biome. So well, what I'm starting to see is that maybe there are some people who are doing better with legumes than others, maybe based on the current composition of their gut biome. Yes. Uh, and, it, and if that altered itself, and maybe that's having an effect on, on the, uh, the lectin influence on the permeability of the gut, for instance. So it becomes this very complicated, nuanced experiment of one, yes. which I have said sort of all along, is a, it's a long, complex quadratic equation. And every time you change one variable, you have to sort of go down the line and figure out what all the other variables are to get the outcome that you seek. So if you decide you want to maybe reintroduce some beans into your diet because uh, you're a person who thinks they taste good, God bless you. Uh, <laughs> Amen. Uh, but uh, if that's the case, then, then there are ways to go about doing that and maybe eliminating other foods at the same time so that you know the full yeah. effect of it. 
Um, and, and is it a fact, is it really a question of lectins or is it sort of a FODMAP element of that yeah. that's, that's causing issues? You know, it's like the more you learn about these things, the less you realize that you actually know. So I always come back to the primal blueprint as it's a template. It's a starting point. I want you to try that for 30 days. And from there, you can make adjustments according to your goals, according to your uh, lifestyle, your proclivities, your desires, wh you know, whatever element of hedonism you want to throw in there. But start with a template and then you make it yours. But again, always comes back to me. I just want to give you the information so that when you make a choice, you go, you know what? Mark said if I do this, this might happen. And if I do this, that might happen. That, that's what makes me feel good about people living a conscious life going back yeah. 20 years to our sort of Louise Hay consciousness <laughs> and uh, awareness and consciousness days because they did a bunch of that too. Now, lectins are, are they're part of our core biochemistry. Like we'd be dead without lectins in our bodies. Correct. All, Correct. all mammals use them. About, in fact, when I was writing the Better Baby book, I went out and I bought a, a college biochem textbook, a little above my reading level for this kind of biochemistry about lectins and like forced myself to go through it and understood at least a third of it. Because uh, there were some things where I just like there was a lot of biochem that I didn't have um, where it, like I, I could follow and, and do it, but it would just take days. And I went through and, and realized, OK, their lectins are pervasive in our biology. They're useful and they can be dangerous depending on what they are, because there's thousands of different lectins out there. And I, I worked through to figure out, OK, what are the benefits we're getting from eating lectins, especially the ones that are more aggressive, like the nightshades, the things that are, are now very well talked about. And what's impressive to me about um, the primal blueprint and around sort of the broader paleo is that over the last four years, there's been change because so many of these, uh, these diet programs, even, you know, Atkins, like the basic rules, fat is good. We forgot what kind of fat we we're talking about. <laughs> Carbs are bad and oh, chemicals are okay. So you, you have these, these poor people. I mean, I was an Atkins guy 15 years ago or something. I'd lost 50 pounds. The other 50 pounds wouldn't come off. Let's see. I was eating piles of NutraSweet, <laughs> piles of acyl sulfate and potassium. Uh, I was eating the wrong fats and the wrong ratios. And those things all matter. So it's cool that, that rather than following this very prescriptive or, you know, eat fewer calories and work out more and you'll lose weight. Also fundamental prescription for disaster at the end of the day. Sure. So, why now are we seeing that the primal blueprint and that paleo in general have been open to changes and becoming more of a movement and less of a, you know, this is it cut and dry and we're not going to change. Like, how come we're open now? Well, um, you know, the interesting thing about Mark's daily Apple, my blog is that I've used that, uh, very selfishly as my own personal wiki over the past, uh, eight years. So when I put something out into the universe, I make a statement or I make a, take a position, I get, a lot of feedback. And some of that feedback is very valuable to me in, in uh, rethinking my position maybe, or maybe it's solidifying my position. So I've had the luxury of having a lot of very smart people in this paleo space come back and say, well, Mark, you know, you know, for instance, in the, in the case of lectins, again, it came out of the blocks thinking lectins are bad. Well, you know, as you say, some of my, it's a dose, it's a dose response kind of situation where, uh, with a with a, a bell curve and uh, all of the standard uh, uh, probability and stats that you'd apply to anything that you consume, some people can't probably can't have many external lectins at all. Some people do fine with uh, you know bombarded with all kinds of stuff, uh, and you have to figure out where you are on that spectrum. With regard to the primal blueprint, I just I just want to keep up to date with the latest information, so I reserve the right to change my mind. Um, I yes. haven't done it. I haven't done it that much, but, you know, the lectin issue might be one of those areas. I mean, I wish that I had come out stronger in the last four or five years in favor of um, resistant starch because I always felt that resistant starch and feeding the gut biome appropriately was the way to go. And yet I sort of pulled back and said, you know, it's about healthy. It's about meat, fish, fowl, eggs, nuts, seeds, vegetables, and a little bit of fruit. Now we're starting to see that um, – how you the, the the prebiotic aspect of foods uh, is is a critical component of a diet, and it's those soluble fibers, those starches that make it down through the digestive and feed the eighty trillion little cells in there that are not you. I I wish I'd 
taken a stronger position on that. I will now because so much research is coming down. I said, you know what, this is, I'm going to, I'm going to change my stance. One area that I haven't changed my stance is on my carbohydrate curve. I still maintain that for most people, the less glucose you burn in a lifetime, probably the better off you are. So people have given me grief for this. Uh, you know, if you get above 150 grams of carbs a day, I say you enter this sort of insidious weight gain zone. Well, whether it's 200 or 225, there's a number at which people don't need that much glucose. Yeah. And to the extent that they're lucky enough to be able to process it and handle it, good for them. But it's not necessarily helpful. And that's the point I want to make is that, you know, glucose, I, and I still maintain that we are obligatory fat burning beasts. Our factory setting is at birth is to become good fat burners. Yeah. And we just screw that mechanism up early enough in our lives that for the rest of our lives, most of us go down this path of having to have carbohydrate every two and a half hours every day or <laughs> right. else we'll rip someone's head off. So uh, again, I'm, I'm just getting back to my defense of my original position, for instance, on the carbohydrate curve. So, but I, I, I get enough feedback on it that, you know, I don't lack yeah. for, for input. It, it helps to have, even though there's a selection bias to people who comment on, on any blog, it helps to have, you know, a thousand or 5,000 or a hundred thousand people saying, you know, I kind of noticed this when I tried that it it's enlightening. And the resistant starch thing, I'm so glad you brought it up because that was the next thing that I was hoping we could talk about. I, I'm i a fan of Richard Nikolai, who's done a lot of this early work, and, and he's uh, certainly talking about taking mass amounts of uh, basically white potato flour, unheated raw potato flour, and using it like a supplement to change his gut biome. So when I, I read about this, I said, all right, I'm, I'm going to try it out on my own N equals 1. So there's you know two ways to take uh, potato starch. You can take it rectally in order to change the gut biome in that part of the gut. Or you can take it orally and it'll go down to that part of the gut. If you take it orally, the lectins we just talked about, which mm -hmm. are part of the uh, you know part of the raw potato flour, um, may cause problems. I am sensitive uh, to that kind of of lectin, so I took it orally for a little while and what do you know? I got the rashes that come from potatoes. So I actually, while well, waiting for my plantain flour to arrive, I tried potato starch the other way a few times, uh, which isn't that pleasant to be perfectly honest. What did I get? Really bad gas. And then I started on the plantain flour. And plantain flowers, you know, like basically green banana flour. And after a couple of weeks of that, I stopped getting the bad gas as much, but I started getting hives from it. Mm. And I'm like, all right, I think I've had enough of this. And the question is with resistant starch, what are you feeding? Like one of the primary guys doing this has like bacteria from a, from a glacier growing in his gut. And he's like, oh, look, this shows up. Like, this is kind of scary. Don't you need to like, maybe like take some someone's healthy poop and then take resistant starch? And that's the next experiment I'd like to run because maybe that would make less histamine producing bacteria in the gut because you repopulate with something that doesn't. But I, I'm concerned about lipopolysaccharides which are formed by bacteria in the gut entering the bloodstream and causing brain fog. And if you feed them resistant starch, they'll still do it. Any yeah. thoughts on the gut biome versus resistant starch? It's, um, it's a, first of all, it's a very interesting area of explanation, exploration. Uh, there is no explanation. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm talking with Richard about a potential book here, but, cool. um, so whether or not, whether or not it's, it's about, just about the resistant starch. Certainly, the whole biome thing fascinates me, and I think I think the health of the gut biome will be the hot topic in health for the next couple of years. I yeah. think it's uh, as we as we look more and more into. But as you said, three thousand species of bacteria that uh, can can reside in the human gut, maybe more. And um, you know, Leach is doing this uh, gut biome project where he's analyzing everybody's poop and figuring out what the what the breakdown is. And I don't think. We know what the is, you know, is there an ideal configuration because it differs from from person to person, from from community to community based on the types of foods that are available to that community. And um, so it's just uh, right now it's a wide open uh, field of exploration. But the fact remains, if you de-anthropomorphize this whole equation, you could arrive at the realization that human beings were evolved to be a life support system for bacterial colonies. <laughs> so it's sort of a matrix, you know, again, a sort of matrix concept that, that if you, again, if you just, th these, these organisms that have been around for, you know, a billion years, 
uh, or more, uh, you know, they're pretty darn smart. And uh, yeah. smart being, again, a, an anthropomorphic type word. But it's interesting to think that more of you is is not you, you know, inside you. The 80, 80 or 90 trillion cells are not you. Uh, and they, they really have a lot to say about what's going on with your digestion, with your immune system. I mean, again, 80% of the immune system resides in the digestive tract. So it's a, it's a very important area of exploration. It, that leads to the next uh, toxin that I wanted to ask you about. And it's mold toxins, mycotoxins. And one of the reasons I'm interested in them is because they stimulate the growth of biofilm in bacteria. So when you have even you know, parts per billion of certain toxins from molds present or the molds themselves present, the bacteria change. And we know this is called like penicillin is a, is a mold toxin, right? Uh, so, but that, that changes what the bacteria do. So they actually form a mat and the mat has the ability to excrete waste and to take in nutrients. And if you've ever seen like a, a kombucha colony, which I'm guessing you have, mm -hmm. um, it looks like an organ from the human body and you touch it and it's leathery and it's actually really creepy. Like I had to toss one out that got uh, mold on it a while back. And I kind of like, do I, do you bury it? Cause it, it looks like you've got a liver or something growing and that's a complex biofilm. But if the same thing's happening in your body and it's modulated by the mycotoxins you take in, my, my feeling, it's probably kind of obvious from the stuff I read. I think mycotoxins are, especially chronic low level ones that never go away are affecting our biofilms and our very thinking. What's your take on the relative importance of mycotoxins versus other things in our diet? Again, uh, it's one of those areas that I'm um, – a uh, friend of mine, Doug Kaufman, has, has yeah. kind of go, gone on record saying, you know, mycotoxins are the cause of cancer. Um, I'm not sure I go that far, but he's, you know, he's sort of one of those cutting-edge guys that leads the way and says, you know, let's look into this at least and let's, yeah. let's explore what's going on here. And, you know, stachybotrys uh, is sort of pervasive in some homes – in, uh, in some of the uh, more humid parts of the country and people get sick. So I think there's a, you know, there's a lot to investigate that uh, there about mycotoxins and then the mycotoxins in some of the food supplies. Uh, corn in particular lends yeah. itself to, to this mycotoxin thing. And I know, you know, you're, uh, you know, the, the whole, the whole coffee issue is a, is a big deal uh, with mycotoxins in coffee. Um, you know, once again, talking about the, the microbiome on the, in, in the body, it's not all in the gut. We have resident bacteria on our skin that literally when you go to bed at night, the reason you don't wake up with three Ill inches of filamentous mold growing on your skin yeah. is because of that bacteria. So to think that, that you're going to get into the shower twice a day and scrub your skin and get rid of all of the, the, the oils and, and support systems and the bacteria there is kind of like, it's a ridiculous way of, of um, plotting a strategy to get healthy. And yet that's kind of what we do. All right. Random question. You don't have to answer if you don't want to. How often do you shower? Uh, I get wet every day. And I don't use soap. I use soap probably three times a week. Um, but my getting wet every day, I have a pool in my backyard. And in the wintertime, it, even though I'm in, in Southern California, it'll be anywhere from 53 to 60 degrees. So every day, I just I walk into the pool and I just hang out for a couple of minutes it's essentially a cold plunge for me around two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, it's become part of my routine when I'm home. I love it. Uh, and that sort of serves as my bath or, you know, whatever for the day. Um, I try to maybe I shampoo again twice a week, maybe. So I do use soap, but I don't use it every day. And I certainly don't use it multiple times a day. Okay, cool. I'm, I'm the same way. I, get wet most days, uh, depending on what's going on. Uh, but I don't use soap on a regular basis because it seems to ruin the composition of my skin. And I just don't use shampoo more than like twice a year, usually something to do with getting my hair cut because I don't need it. I don't get dandruff when I'm like that. And if I do have a few flakes, you can usually say, how many carbs came in the last couple of days? And yeah. it's because I went over the, like, it's, it's very predictable yeah. and controllable, right? And this drives some people kind of nuts because, you know, I was brought up, if you're not taking a shower every day, at least once, like you're a dirty person. I'm like, yeah, I guess I'm a dirty person, but I'm good with that. Yeah. All right. We are getting near the end of the podcast, and I'm thinking we have time to talk about intermittent fasting and then to, to close down our conversation. You up for that? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Intermittent fasting. I know you eat in a window. I do the same thing. Tell the people who are listening to this, how do you do intermittent fasting? What's your take on it? Well, so first of all, um, I, I do eat in a compressed eating window, 1 p.m. to 7 p.m. typically. And 
that's my eating strategy that I don't even refer to that as intermittent fasting. That's just mm -hmm. a, that's just a way of eating that I've developed that maximizes my, uh, my fat burning and allows also for the pulse of uh, whatever uh, HGH or testosterone that I want to generate in a workout. So I go into my workouts, like I'll wake up in the morning, I'll have a cup of coffee, a big cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. um, I don't do Bulletproof and I don't do egg coffee, which is my- yeah, Your primal egg coffee, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just have a big cup of coffee. I like, you know, I, I like that. Um, I will then go to work a little bit and around 9.30, I'll go to the gym or I'll go on a hike or I'll go to the beach and do sprints. I do it fasted. I don't eat after the workout, I don't. I typically don't eat until about one o'clock in the afternoon. All intended to uh, maximize muscle mass, uh, to get whatever benefits of autophagy that I can develop in that short period of time. That would be sort of related to the intermittent fasting thing, um, but all contemplated to, to to make me really good at burning fat because that's kind of my thing. I just I, I I'm, in, I'm obsessed with being a fat burning beast, and that's sort of what I coach, and that's sort of the essence of of the primal blueprint because. When you become good at burning fat, your appetite self-regulates, and you don't get hungry that much, and you're able to intermittent fast, and that's a real key yeah. skill to develop. It, when people talk about intermittent fasting in the carbohydrate paradigm, they see all sorts of, of weird things. They still see benefits from skipping a meal for, say, 36 hours, but they see extra cortisol released. They see a uh, decrease in uh, uh, you know, in, in, in mood and a lot of things that have to do with the body not having been adapted to accessing fats and ketones, uh, they still show benefits to the to the fast. Well, if you're fat adapted and keto adapted, and you skip a meal or you skip a day of eating, you, you know the body just says, "Hey, I know where to get 500 calories right away. I'll get it off my ass or off my <laughs> hips or th whatever my thighs." Yeah. And it doesn't care whether that same saturated fat came from a meal or the body because it's all going to drive uh, an, an energy system that you have built. You've built metabolic machinery to be able to burn ketones in the brain, for instance. Yep. So whereas a sugar burner might require 120 grams of glucose a day to fuel the brain and stay uh, active and, and, and functioning, a keto-adapted, fat-adapted person might only need 30 or 40 grams of glucose, all of which can come from either gluconeogenesis or from the glycerol molecule stripped off the fatty acid. So th there's, not even a, uh, there's not even an issue there, but you develop the skill because mitochondrial biogenesis if we want to talk about a hack the greatest thing you can do for your body is increase the number and the efficiency of your mitochondria and you do that by cutting back on sugar you do that by forcing your body to burn its fat stores and when it gets that signal all of those little genetic switches they upregulate they say we need to build more of these powerhouses we need to build more mitochondria and then the mitochondrial DNA says we need to be more efficient at putting fat through because we, as the mitochondria, are the stumbling block. We're the we're the we're the we're the backup where all the fat has to has to put through. Well, when you get to that point, and you can access that fat, you don't need to burn sugar throughout the day. You don't need to take in carbohydrates, so you can skip these meals. Now, a couple things: if you try, if your person wants to lose weight. Uh, intermittent fasting for 24, 36 hours once a week, great thing. You know, I, I highly encourage it. Um, it works better for men than women. We, that's yes. a whole different discussion yes. that we can have about hormonal disruptions and things like that. But it's, it's again, it's a, it's a experimental one that, that you might want to, want to try. But the other reason for intermittent fasting is this wonderful analogy I use, where you have a cell, and the cell says. Well, let's see, there's lots of glucose around, so let's divide, because our job is to pass the genetic material forward into the future. So if there's lots of food and lots of glucose and lots of other nutrients, we can divide, become two cells. This will be great. Everybody will have fun. We'll, we'll get this whole life process over sooner so that the next uh, or, organism can be created. Now, conversely, think about a cell that doesn't have now you've been fasting for 36 hours. The cell goes, geez, what do I do? There's no food around. The last thing I want to do is divide. So I'm going to, I think I'll, I'll eat some of the damaged proteins and some of the damaged fats that are inside me. I think I'll clean house a little bit. Yes. I think I'll uh, remodel. I'll fix up some of the DNA. So there's a real uh, longevity, anti-aging uh, uh, component to intermittent fasting that, that is, is um, I think, really beneficial. Uh, it's worth doing for, for people. I think there's no reason not to. I am in full support of those ideas. And you mentioned a couple of things about hormones there. You're, you're over 60, uh, HCG, testosterone, bioidentical testosterone, human growth hormone. Are you going to do them? Uh, I'm, I'm already on testosterone. I've, <laughs> I've talked about that before. Um, 
because my numbers show that it's beneficial for me. But what's your take? Right, right. Maybe. There's a point at which I think HGH, I think I'm not a big fan of HGH the con- conceptually. I think it's like a master hormone that can, yeah. there's just not enough known about it right Could now. Could be dangerous. Could be dangerous. Um, you know, I'm open. I mean, HCG doesn't, doesn't appeal to me. Um, my wife does HRT. She's 58. She looks great. She started in uh, uh, menopause. And so she's been doing it for five or six years. So for women, I think uh, hormone replacement is probably um, something worth experimenting if you if you are exhibiting uh, symptoms that you don't like. Uh, for men, again, if you test low, I'm, I'm not opposed to it. Uh, just you have to be very careful with this stuff because there's I think the jury's still out on a lot of this. Well, you can get uh, that uh, atrophy of your genitals or actually just your balls, but <laughs> still yes. testicular atrophy is, is no right. fun, right? Um, but I suppose that there are other ways to get it that involve not eating enough butter and animals. So uh, uh, <laughs> it can happen either way. Yeah. All right. Who needs big balls, I say, but I mean, you know. <laughs> Some kind of, was it ACDC? <laughs> right, as long as everything else is is uh, according yeah. to, to the exact measure. It's that next yeah. level up that matters. There we yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, there's a question uh, that everyone who's been on uh, a Bulletproof podcast uh, has answered, except that one time when I forgot to ask. And that is, given everything you've learned, Mark, which is is a fascinating amount of things, not just from MDA, though, but your whole life, Louise Hay included, top three most important recommendations you have for people who want to perform better, want to kick more ass, what are they? Top top would be um, get appropriate amounts of sleep. I think people are shocked when I when I when I say that because they think oh it's got to be, have to do with a diet. But probably the number one thing that I think people suffer from now is a is a sleep disorder that they brought on themselves. So I would say really make sure you orchestrate your sleep schedule uh, and and pay close attention to that. Uh, number two, cut out sugar. Uh, sugar is uh, where, where however you can do it, whether or not you give up grains. Cut out the sugar. Make sure that you are not drinking your calories in the form of soda. Um, the desserts have to cut way back. Uh, and look for added sugar in the labels. But if you can get rid of the sugar, and then pr- presumably if you can get rid of the 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 stuff that turns to sugar, the the uh, processed grains and so on, uh, you'll be way ahead of everybody else around you who's trying to lose weight, trying to find more energy, trying to reduce inflammation. Um, and probably number three is um, find ways to move throughout the day, not necessarily in terms of exercise, because it's not about counting calories. It's yeah. just about the movement through <laughs> space. I mean, I'm talking to you. I'm, I'm at my stand-up desk uh, during this, uh, you know, during this interview. Um, I'll find ways to, to move throughout the day. I'll go for a, uh, uh, you know, a hike in the middle of the day. I'm always looking for ways to move, and I think, um, and my hip flexors have thanked me for that, by the way, since I've been doing a stand-up desk and. Uh, at my at my office, all of my employees have a treadmill under their desk. So I didn't force it upon them. They actually asked for it. And so my employees can put six, eight, ten miles a day in walking 1.7 miles an hour, you know, working on the keyboard, answering the phones and stuff like that. So uh, find ways to move. That is uh, – that's so cool. In case you heard that noise, uh, that was actually my stand-up desk. It's moving up and down right now. Uh, okay. I have an electric one. I've been standing for our whole podcast too. But I, I found walking to be a little distracting. So I every hour I'll step on my whole body vibration plate for five minutes and just do 30 times a second bouncing, assuming that that does enough proprioception that it's probably similar to walking. <laughs> but Which one do you have? The I, I use uh, one that I manufacture. It's called the Bulletproof Vibe. It's a uh, oh, okay, $1,500 vertical up and down only 30 hertz only but it's like small it doesn't have handles or anything which is why i like it because it just fits wherever um so it's uh it's an interesting idea it sounds like you've tried do you have one whole body vibration no i don't i I mean uh pineapple i don't know the company pineapple but they they the designers of that were friends of mine and when it first came out about 10 years ago i started using it and uh, it's kind of fun to do push-ups on or do squats on yeah, um, okay, and I, I'm I'm uh, not opposed to the science. I think I think the science is there, but at some point, you know, I'm I'm going to be gadgeted out here if I keep going. Uh, I think it's already happened to me, but yeah. it's so fun. So yeah, Mark, tell people like they don't already know, given how popular you are. But tell people your URL, your latest book, where they can learn about the other books that you're publishing with other health innovators. Just basically give give us your coordinates. Uh, MarkStaleyApple.com uh, is the site. Uh, it's uh, I encourage people to sign up for the newsletter. It goes out every week. Also, primalblueprint.com is where we sell our books and our events and uh, supplements and everything else that helps 
uh, take advantage of all the technology and all the education that we've amassed. Mark, thanks again for coming on. Uh, it's been an honor to chat with you. I'm a fan of your work and I appreciate all the energy you put into what you do. Appreciate it, Dave. Thanks for having me. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.